We are Gilbert and George. And this is Resonance 104 4FM. The Art of Listening. I'm Eddie Merckx. You listen to The Bicycle Show on Resonance 104.4 FM. This is The Bike Show on Resonance 104.4 FM. My name's Jack Thurston and we're edging towards Christmas. Yuletide is upon us. And um, it's becoming a little bit of a tradition on the show to do a, um, a bicycle books special around about this time of year. Last year we had uh, Graham Fife and Guy Andrews in the studio talking about their favourite books. But this time we've gone one better and we've got one of the world's leading experts on bicycling books. So my guest in the studio this week is Tim Dawson, um, who writes the uh, Cycle Guy column in the Sunday Times. Welcome to the show, Tim. Hello, Jack. Nice to be here. And as well as writing for the Sunday Times, um, you maintain a website that contains your um, reviews, quite comprehensive reviews, of um, cycling literature. Uh, where, where did that idea come from? I, I, I've been a cyclist since I was a child, and... Uh, I, I guess found over the years that I read books as they came my way and I realised probably six or seven years ago that I'd read ten or twenty and I, I started occasionally buying them second hand and the chap who sold me them second hand I don't know, he advertised in the back of Cycling Weekly or something would occasionally send me a list with little recommendations uh, saying this is good or that's not so good uh, and I found myself thinking well there must be a better list than, than I just get sent once a quarter and so started looking on the internet and elsewhere for one and couldn't find one so I thought I'd start compiling one myself now since then I have found that other people did maintain lists but I'd started by then I got my own ball rolling and I don't think anybody else on the web is doing reviews in quite the way I do so I, I've continued doing it since then and I'm I think at about the 150 mark so do you think um, there are a lot of books about cycling c- comparatively to other, you know, to, to other interests, you know, I don't know, walking or lawn mowing or tennis or other things that people, you know, little sub-genre? I, I guess I, I suspect that there are more about walking. I, I know because uh, there's, a, there's a gentleman in the West Midlands called Ted Williams who has a, a bibliography of some four and a half thousand books about cycling in the English language. Uh, that there are a lot. I mean, that's a, a daunting number, dating right back to the 1840s. Um, I, I haven't compared that with walking. I suspect there are more about walking. I think there is something perhaps in the nature of walking that that has uh, it, it's 
contemplative in a way that I think perhaps has persuaded more people to to write about it. And it's obviously something that requires no equipment. So I guess one of the things I was trying to do was find out whether there was something that could be called a literature of cycling uh, that, 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 that consisted of a body of work in the way that people talk about it with, with walking. I, be, I believe there is. I think there's something in the nature of cycling, actually, that, that, that leads one to contemplation and leads one to a kind of writing. Well, let's um, explore that. But if we can imagine ourselves sitting on top of Mount um, Olympus, looking down over the uh, the domain of cycling literature, let's start with the, the, the very best, the cream of the crop. Um, I asked you to uh, come up with your, your top three, the kind of must-have books. I think in, in top position, Tim Crabbe's The Rider, uh, it... it um, is a first-person narrative that attempts to describe the experience of riding competitively. Um, and it's just an incredibly gripping uh, exploration of everything that his body goes through and and the training that he's had to endure and the little mental tricks he's played on himself. And it, it, it's, it's one of the few books that I'd say, if you have no interest in cycling, it's still worth reading just as, a, as an extraordinary exploration of physical endeavour. Uh, absolutely fantastic book. And the others? Uh, Matt Seaton's Escape Artist. Uh, he, Matt's a, a, a journalist on The Guardian. Uh, it's quite a poignant story, but it takes him from, from boyhood enthusiasm to cycling to competitive cycling at quite a high level. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the way that events in his own life kind of unfold and, in, and, and interact with that. But he has a great way of, of, of sort of analysing some of the experiences involved in cycling, from mundane things to shaving your legs to, to the, sort of the quality of tubular tyres and things like that, that that makes it a real treat for somebody who, who, who's been involved in cycling. It's sort of, he, a lot of his reflections make you think anew about some of the experiences um, that, 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 that you have had. Um, and in... Well, give give me your number three. Well, my I don't know my my um, up there for me is the um, Sweat of the Gods um, book, which uh, I'll reach over and get it here. Ah, here we go. Um, Benio Masso, um, I think, also translated into the into the English. And I've re- recently read this. I was recommended to get this by um, Buffalo Bill. He wrote a very positive review on the Moving Target Zine website, and this is um, an account of kind of the history really it's amazing it's a short volume only uh, 160 pages but it kind of covers the whole evolution of professional cycling in a way that I think dispels a lot of the hyperbole and the myth making which maybe we get a little bit too much of in um, in certain kinds of uh, writing about cycling and and he he really uncovers the commercial nature of it all but then again he's not he's not it's not a kind of expose in a hostile way it's it's not um you know a, a kind of a, a, an aggressive book about you know this is all a load of rubbish but it's like well take it for what it is and understand it for what it is and it, and it also plays out some of the interesting um tussles between uh the kind of people at the top of their game at the time whether it's um Oncotil and Pulidor or Bartoli and uh, Fausto Coppi and in a way through that you get into an understanding of the cultural roots of of cycling and I don't know whether we're going to get a it's probably a bit too late to develop a really uh, strong rivalry between Contador and Armstrong but um, I, that, that could be quite illustrative so that's that's definitely my uh, up there on my list also Bad to the Bone um, the novel which is kind of a, a sort of magical realist um, 
uh, take on on cycling and doping, and it was recommended to me by Bike Snob New York City, um, who um, sent me a copy very kindly. Said it was his favourite book about cycling, um, and and I, I admire very much and enjoy his writing. So I thought, well, I, I have to read this one, and I, I wasn't disappointed. That's that's a good book, and I don't quite know why it's not still in print, but it's still quite easy to find on the secondhand market. It, I mean, I I think Badge the Bone was was sort of about uh, the way that Indurain was so often written up as this sort of physiological superman um and you know in many respects armstrong it, it, it is much the same but uh, but both that and um the benny amasso book are great at talking about the way in which uh, i mean i guess one of the paradoxes of sport that um people who lead races from beginning to end and who metronomically win um while they're doing what sport expects of them actually don't make races compelling and not very popular with the organisers. Henri Desgrange endlessly tried to reformat the uh, the Tour de France uh, in such a way that it would create sort of epic uh, battles where there wasn't going to be a clear winner until right at the end. And I think both both the James Waddington book and Benny Amasso are really, really good on, on sort of unpicking that rather complicated relationship. Before we turn to um, the Tour de France and, and, and road racing properly in more detail, we must mention Paul Fournel's book, Need for the Bike, in the English translation. Of course, this has been serialised with Paul's own reading uh, from the English translation recorded at the Calder Bookshop in Waterloo. And we're going to end the show with um, another instalment of that um, uh, Paul talking about the wind and um, that's something to look forward to right at the end of the show coming up to seven o'clock what do you like about Paul's writing rather in, in the same way that, that, that Matt Seaton does but with a different set of experiences he he looks at what it is to ride a bike and the the uh, micro experiences that make things up that, that perhaps you wouldn't immediately think about because a bike's such an easy thing you get on it and start riding it and and most of us I guess feel great but he talks about how the wind affects you, how the road surface affects you, how the the aches in your legs from the day before affect you. And I guess it's another of those books that, that really makes you – it gives you another route into your own experiences, the way he microanalyzes things. Uh, and, and, and some of the special things about cycling that perhaps you don't recognize, although you enjoy them, he's teased them out and, and in a very poetic way, um, I, I, I think, kind of represented them. It's a book I could return to again and again. Okay, and so before we uh, turn to the Tour de France, tell me a little bit about what it is that you think makes the act of cycling um, so consonant with 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 the written form. Um, it it. As you cycle, as your body starts to warm up, as you feel the sort of thrum of the road transmitted uh, through a steel frame, um, it, 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 it's a kind of an extraordinary feeling, and 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 but one that you, it, it is quite hard to explain. It's one that perhaps you would more generally experience, but I, I think that. It, 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 it's something that really merits writers trying to explain it and trying to convey it because by doing so, by allowing, you know, by giving you new and fresh ways of understanding um, that experience and, and you know, the, the many other experiences, the experiences of, of being cycling with a group of people and, and, and the kind of comradeship that you get with it or the, the slightly nervous feeling you have if you ever go out on a bike ride with somebody you don't know and it's, you know, are they going to be so much stronger than me or am I going to be so much stronger than them? I mean, th- th- there's a thousand and one experiences which are, uh, w- which just require a bit of teasing out to understand them and I think that's where writing, you know, can really contribute to the enjoyment of cycling. You're a uh, journalist by trade and when we had the psychologist Rosie Wolford on the show a couple of years ago, she 
was talking about how cycling, but also swimming and walking, a kind of basic repetitive physical activity, was very conducive for original thought, mm -hmm. insights, things that when you're sitting at your desk wouldn't necessarily uh, come to you. And when you're stuck on something, if you just go out for a little spin, mm -hmm. somehow the turning of the legs, the, 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 the process of steering, uh, the process of thinking about, you know, what's coming up and enjoying the, the, the world as it flits past you in a very cinematic, scenic kind of um, episodic kind of way, almost frees up that part of the brain which which is worried, which is multitasking and, and allows you to have insights that you wouldn't have otherwise had. Do you, do, do you go along completely. with that? I agree. I, I, if only it happened every time I got on my bike, I would have written many, many books. But certainly, you know, I write an 800-word column and sitting in front of my computer struggling for ideas works far less well than going out on my bike and sometimes I can start with a sentence and it's fully formed by the time I get back and I can then just sit there and write it up and it, it rattles off enormously quickly and you know I mean both from point of view of writing and just coming up with ideas there is something I don't know if it's a left brain right brain sort of thing that, that kind of loosens something up and the ideas just come flowing. So let's turn to the Tour de France because probably more has been written about that and um, I guess the general world of cycle racing than, than maybe anything else. Um, guide us through the, the, the best books about Tour de France. Well, Benio Masso, as you've, you've described, I think is a, 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 is a great introduction. Um, Jeffrey Wheatcroft's Le Tour uh, is, is perhaps a slightly more uh, conservative book than Benio Masso, but if you're looking for something that still gives you a grounding in the Tour's history and, and its roots in French society and its importance in French society, I, I, I don't think that you can do much better than, than, than the Jeffrey Wheatcroft book. Funnily enough, I mean, there's a there's a, a sort of coffee table picture book of Lance Armstrong out for Christmas, and I, I'm, a, I'm not a great Lance Armstrong fan, and I certainly don't enjoy his own books, but, um, I, you know, 300 pages of big pictures of him reveals a man and reveals an athlete in a way that, that, that words actually have, haven't done, and I, I found that quite a... Um, uh, a good experience. Looking back historically, far my favourite book about the tour is uh, Jeff Connor's Wide-Eyed and Legless. Now, sadly, quite difficult to find. Uh, but but Connor, who was a, a journalist on the Daily Star, rather improbably, uh, was sent by his newspaper to follow the ANC Halfords team in the 1987 tour. I mean, the only British team to have uh, competed in the race in the last 40 years. And they were a catastrophe from beginning to end. They they didn't know what they were doing. Their riders were ill-prepared. Their equipment fell apart. The riders deserted. The team boss went bust. Uh, everything that conceivably could have gone wrong did go wrong. And it... it because he's, he, he reports it, I guess, from a point of view of not knowing a great deal about cycling before he starts, it, I mean, it was the book that really started to unlock for me the incredible complexities of professional cycling and the way that, that it's not always what you see that's going on that's most important. Uh, do you want to... Do you want to uh, read a, a section from that? I see you've got a little pink slip in there. Why don't, why don't you uh, read a section from this I'll one? do my best. Um, this is... <clears throat> It, it, this is not really about the ANC team falling apart. This is about, I guess, that race's most dramatic moment um, when Stephen Roach uh, came back seemingly from the dead. Uh, he and Pedro Delgado were on the final climb of, of a sort of three-climb day um, going up La Plonge, and it looked like all was lost for Roach. But then came the final thrilling, courageous and ultimately ugly drama. Roach would not allow himself to quit. Reaching, as he admitted later, deep into himself as he'd never done before, he began his lone pursuit. 
Rushing out into the cold sunlight to catch the climax, we watched Delga- as Delgado wobbled slowly into the banner-lined finishing straight before, incredibly, the little figure in red, the red, white and blue Carrera vest appeared 20 yards behind, weaving from one side to the other. He lurched over the line and the Irishman vanished under a wave of cameramen's, ca- cameras, recorders and notebooks, all fighting, some punching for the same exclusive. Roach stretched out a hand for support, but found nothing there, and toppled onto the road, face turned upward to the sky, his blue eyes innocently vacant like those of a newly born child. Stephen, uncross your legs, shouted his mechanic Volk, as he fought through the hysterical crowd to reach the rider's side. The doctor elbowed his way brusquely through with an oxygen mask and aluminium foil, and Roach, breathing slowly and deeply, gradually came round. Above him on the podium, Pedro Delgado, the race leader by 29 seconds, was climbing into the yellow jersey. After a short precautionary trip to the hospital, Roach turned to the, returned to the residence bellicote to eat, sleep and perhaps try to save his tour. For the hunting pack of media, however, there was still a job to do. A group of French journalists tiptoed up to the sixth floor where Roach lay in a bid to snatch a late-night quote from the stricken rider. Knocking timidly on the door, they were confronted by his minder, Shepherds, who was about to dismiss them when Roach amazingly called out, ''Just give me half an hour.'' Despite the traumas of the most dramatic day, Roach, the little professional, was still prepared to fulfil his duties. I may not have won the tour today, he said, said Roach, but at least I've made sure I haven't lost it. A couple of days later, he comprehensively beat Delgado in the final time trial of the race and won the tour by 40 seconds. Well, that was an extract from Wide-Eyed and Legless, and that's by Tim... Jeff Connor. Jeff Connor, uh, but, but hard to find on the second-hand market. A books, is that somewhere to go for that one? It would indeed be. I, I very much hope it's republished. It deserves to be, and perhaps it will, um, you know, with, with the new interest in the Sky team. You know, we're back in the tour, hopefully far more professionally than, than last time. Um, I, I hope it will find a, somebody to republish it. All right, well, let's have some music, and we'll come back for more cycling books. Cover Listening to Resonance FM. This is the Bike Show. My name's Jack Thurston. I'm joined by Tim Dawson, and we're talking about cycling books. You're listening to Spanky Wilson and the Quantic Soul Orchestra with their version of "You Can't Judge a Book by Looking at Its Cover." One of the books which I rather liked has got a terrible cover. 
um, is um, is Thunder and Sunshine, um, the uh, account by Al Humphreys of, um, or the second half of his Round the World by Bike um, book, and that's got that's got a lousy cover, if you ask me, um, but I think it's quite a good book. Should we should we talk a little bit about um, other touring um, touring books, sort of travelogue books? What, sure. what do you think of um, of Al's books? I, I agree with you, and um, in a way, he's the antidote to the people who try to go around the world as fast as possible, because um, while it's very impressive going around the world as fast as possible. Um, it tends to get a little tedious as a as a as a, as a narrative, uh, whereas Alistair Humphreys quite clearly went out to you know to spend far more time and to get far more deeply into the cultures through which he travelled, which I think makes it a, a you know, it's a better book for that. Um, Other favourites in the touring genre? I mean, obviously, there's Dervla Murphy has done some great travels um, on bicycle and all sorts of other modes of transport. And in a way, she's a traveller who chose to go by bike on some of her journeys rather than a kind of cyclist who decided to go and see the world. Does it break down like that? People who are because I'm not sure that Al is actually a cyclist, really. Um, he, he's an adventurer, basically. You know, he would go to the South Pole if, if he could, um, and he wouldn't go on a bicycle. There's quite a few, I think, who you know, the, the, the bicycle is somewhat incidental to their to their um, to their journeys. And Musto, who uh, died two weeks ago, I think. But I think you know, she uh, introduced the idea of cycle touring and that means of of uh, engaging with cultures to an audience who uh, you know a long way distance to the traditional cycling crowd. She had been the headmistress of quite a posh girls' school and she brought a kind of Radio 3 culturally switched-on sensibility to travelling and, you know, her interest was in in high culture and ancient civilizations. Um, and that she cycled was was incidental, I think. To and she rode, a, she rode a Moulton, didn't she, I think? Yeah. She riding a Moulton? Got a feeling she was. Anyway, move on, move you on. Let's, let's go to, no, the, let's go to what, what have we got Condor. next? Um, Quite a nice book out at the moment, Andrew Eames' uh, Blue River Black Sea. He follows the Danube from its German source to to the Black Sea, um, not travelling exclusively by um, by bicycle. He also sails and walks a little, but I think he took his lead partly from Patrick Lee for Moore, who walked that journey in the 1930s, and, and again, his... his determination to engage with his environment and with people around him means that while the, the cycling sections are good, there's a lot more beside uh, to, to, to really get your teeth into. Um, and then there's Tom Kevill Davis, the, the Hungry Cyclist, which I like Tom and it was good to have him on the show, but I wasn't convinced by the book. I found the humour a little bit laboured and I, I, just didn't, I just didn't get caught by it. I mean, I read quite a lot of his dispatches from from his journey on the internet, and it didn't seem like the book was doing anything more than just putting those together and linking them all up. Um, I, I guess that shows how books that are attempting to be humour will work for some people and not work for yeah, others. Yeah, because you don't, you don't like French Revolutions I by don't. Tim Moore, which I thought was hilarious. Yes, I, I, I enjoy The Hungry Cyclist. I think, I mean, I too love food. Um, I've never travelled quite as far um, as Tom Cavill Davis in search of it, but but... I, I am attracted to the idea of seeking out food around the world, whereas Tim Moore, I kind of felt was laughing at cyclists at the end of the day, and his humour didn't do it for me. But I guess that just shows that humour is a thing that's personal. OK, well, let's talk about um, a book by Richard Ballantyne, because this, for some people, is the book. I'm not sure if we've got time for the reading, because we, we, are, we are pressed on time. So just give us the overview of Richard's bicycle book. 
Well, he first published in the early 70s, Richard Ballantyne is this incredibly passionate, bombastic American writer who um, I, I think sort of carried a candle for cycling and cycle culture in times when it was really, really very heavy going. And I mean, the great thing about his books is that they look like they're going to be regular cycle manual, how to fix your brakes kind of books. But actually, he's like a revivalist preacher. He's, he's, he draws you into the tent and it's then this pulsating certainty that he he preaches with um, none more so than when he's talking about dogs which he has a, a, a loathing for really that's quite astonishing um, but he does eventually get round to telling you how to fix your brakes but the the route to it through his incredible uh, sort of um, passion for cycling is 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 far more fun than the fixing of the brakes well, there are various other um, manuals of, of cycling, and we'll list those on the Bike Show's website. There are, as well as books that you could buy people for, um, for Christmas, you could also buy them a subscription to Ruler magazine, um, a, 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 a magazine that I write for um, from time to time. And there's also The Ride, which is the kind of rival to Ruler, really the young upstart, I suppose. Um, we've had um, them in on the show talking about that. And you've got a piece in the current issue of The Ride, haven't you? I have. Um, which is actually, I, I thought, was a, a really wonderful piece. There are only about 100 copies left in existence, I think, of the ride. Um, there's a few available through um, the ride itself. Also, it's stocked in Magma and Condor, I think. Um, but we have got three copies of both the current issue of the ride and um, the new issue of Ruler to give away. A couple of quiz questions. The quiz question uh, for Ruler is going to be set by Tim. Okay. What was the name of Eileen Sheridan's autobiography and which record is it that she's most famous for breaking? OK, Eileen Sheridan's autobiography and what is the, uh, the record that she's most famous for breaking? Answers by email, bikeshow at resonancefm.com. And a very quick question for the, uh, the winner of the ride. Very quick question. You have to answer it in your own way. The question is Campagnolo or Sturmy Archer? <laughs> Sturmy Archer or Campagnolo? And um, neither of those words will be admitted as an answer. Tim, it's been a huge pleasure having you on the show. We could have talked for another hour, I think, about cycling books. We've got them all piled up here on the, uh, on the table, but we'll have to have you back or, or go for a rolling interview sometime when the, uh, when the weather's a bit fairer. So um, thanks for coming on the show. And we're going to play out now with um, Paul Fornell talking about the wind. The bike is the school of the wind. There are two kinds of biking winds, objective wind and relative wind. The first one is produced by the world around us, and the second is the work of the cyclist alone. His masterpiece, you might say. For the faster he is, the more wind he creates. The strongest wind I can recall is the wind of the west of Ireland. I pedaled along the coast south of Galway and I was careful always to leave riding into the wind so that I could be sure of getting back. I was alone and it was a rough fight. There was no mercy. Everything that allows you to cheat and find shelter was missing. No trees, no houses, no hedges, no contours. Nothing but the wet, powerful, inexhaustible ocean wind. Stretch out on the bike I had the feeling I was killing time, condemned to use mountain gears on flat terrain. On the way back, all along the Irish coast, it was sheer delight. 
when my little inner breath connected with the big outside wind, more pleasurable than descending, because I felt like I was in super shape, going much faster than I should have been. Having very early on at my own expense learned that the wind wears you out, I soon learned to note from which direction it was blowing. There is something of the sailor in the cyclists. Thanks to this basic training, you learn to shelter yourself better and take better advantage of the strength of others. When the wind blows from the side or from an angle, the riders fan out across the road so as they can use their companions as barriers. These fans are called bordures. And if you are not in the right one, getting from one to another is practically impossible. The relative wind made by the cyclist is that of its own speed. You can feel it when a rider brushes against you. You can also feel it when a faster cyclist passes you. They call it catching cold. One day, going up the pillar and not dawdling, I caught a cold in this way from a young lady as agile as a gazelle who was climbing like an airplane. Did she ever have a nice pedaled stroke? It was a real pleasure to see her locked in a rhythm, dusting me off with a bit of breeze. Luckily for me, I was able to get on a wheel. The cyclist, by creating a wind, hollows out a space in which it's easier to ride. If you stay locked onto the rear wheel, you'll do 25% less work. Merci, Gazelle. In fact, shelter and suction are the best reasons to make cycling friends. You can benefit from the combined efforts and relax for a moment before taking your turn at the front. To really take advantage, you have to stay close in the bubble with your front wheel only a few centimeters from the wheel in front. If you give up a few bike length, the wind closes in on you and getting back is not easy. When whoever's in front is pulling really hard, it can even be impossible. In the 1996 Tour de France, in the long and very regular descent from Montgenèvre to Briançon, the peloton anxious to get the finish stretched out in a long unbroken line with every racer fighting to keep his place. Melchor Maury, a good Italian rider, had been pedaling next to our car and had some derriere problem that made him lose his spot. He was slipping away very quickly from the group. Christian Palka, who was driving, told me, if we leave him there, he'll soon be 10 minutes down. He won't get back in by himself at that speed. So we sheltered him with our car for about 100 meters to get him back in the line. He thanked us with a pleasant wink. At that point, we were doing about 80 kilometers per hour. Please, don't repeat this story, since it's strictly forbidden by race rules 
to help riders in this way by breaking the terrible law of the wind. That was Paul Fournell reading from Need for the Bike. Well, that show is one of those shows where I really needed an hour, I think, to get the most out of Tim Dawson uh, talking about cycling books. You can visit Tim's website where he has um, a lot of listings of the books we talked about and many others, as well as his reviews of the books. And the website is Cycling Books, and that's www.cycling-books.com. Cycling-books.com. And I'll put a link to that on the Bike Show's webpage, along with a list of the books we discussed. And um, if you click through from the Bike Show's web page to um, Amazon to buy those books then Resonance will get some of the money so um, that would be a great way of supporting your favourite bicycling radio station so apologies to podcast listeners for the uh, hurried end of that show but that's just the way things go with a half hour radio show when you've got at least an hour's worth of content poor planning on my part we'll return next week for the last show of the year, though not the last show of the current season, because the current season will be continuing on in the new year. And I'll be joined by Nigel Warburton, who does the Philosophy Bites podcast. And we'll be talking about the philosophy and morality of red lights. That looks like it's going to be a very interesting debate. So until then, thanks for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>